Good morning, church. Is this? Yeah, okay. Just wasn't talking very loud. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to recognize someone. Uh, We've had for the summer a children's ministry intern. Lydia has been working very hard. I'm sure you've seen her running around with a couple of kids in tow all summer. Uh, But this is her last week working uh, with us this summer before she spends a little time with family and then resumes her schoolwork at George Fox. So we just wanted to take a moment and recognize her for her work and say thank you. And we have a couple cards for her. And I was was thinking maybe, uh, is Josiah still here? Is he, he was, yeah, Josiah, can you come up here and take these back to her? That way she doesn't have to run all the way up here. Here you go. She's on the back row there. Thank you. It is, it can be tough work working with children, uh, especially your children, right? Um, But it is an important task. And so, Lydia, we are very thankful for the work that you've put in um, blessing our children and uh, just helping to bolster our children's ministry. Awesome. Well, Chris is gone. I think he's taking some much-needed R&R. And I just want to remind us all to be praying for their family uh, You've probably seen uh, Lorinda's side of the family has been um, taking some hard hits recently, and so let's just let's be sure to keep them in our prayers. Uh, but we are working our way through Deuteronomy this summer. In fact, we are almost at the end of Deuteronomy, and I want us to think this morning about the image of God that Deuteronomy portrays. What what image comes to mind as um, the, a reader would read through Deuteronomy or even hearing for the first time Moses speak to the people of Israel, what kind of imagery does that portray? I don't know if you've ever, maybe you have a friend like this. Um, Rebecca and I do, and I'm, I know he won't be listening to this so I can talk about him, but we have a friend who we would play board games with a lot, and he's the kind of person that is a stickler for the rules. Before we start a game, he will read the whole rule book and then annoyingly keep everyone accountable. He doesn't even care if he wins. He just wants you to suffer as much as possible while you play the game. And I won't say his name, just in case he does listen to this, but he would know. Um, Maybe the image of God that you get from Deuteronomy is something like you see in this Far Side comic. I don't, know, I don't know if you like Farside. I think they can be pretty good. But if you can't see here, it's God at his computer, and he has his finger over a key that says smite, as if he's just waiting to take this guy out who's got a piano above his head. Um, I don't know if that's the imagery that you get of God. I know that there are some who uh, read the Bible, and that's the image of God that they come away with. That God's just waiting at his divine keyboard to smite whoever he can, anyone who steps out of line, anyone who doesn't follow the rules. And even reading through uh, these a couple chapters here at the end, you, you can kind of get that, that depiction of God. And it, I think it's It's understandable how people who are void of a relationship with God and who haven't experienced God's love and justice 
to come away with this understanding that God is just waiting to push that key and wipe you out. But after reading the law and then the curses to those um, who are faith, unfaithful and the blessings to, to the Israelites if they are faithful, you kind of get this picture of God that's if you go this way, this will happen, and if you go this way, that will happen. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago uh, when I spoke, that my initial reaction to the law as I was growing up and studying it was, I'm glad that I wasn't born way back then and have to keep Torah and memorize all these laws and do all these inconvenient things. I had a poor view of the law that it was burdensome. And, you know, I thought, how can this law be associated with love? We have all these psalms even and scriptures talking about how the law is wonderful and that the law is love. And I just couldn't see that. I think I just lost it here. All right, I'll just use this. Here we go. I think we can begin to see as we study that obedience to Torah is an act of love. Obedience to Torah is an act of love. It's not just about following these rules to make God happy. That's not, I don't think that's the kind of relationship that God wants with his people, but that it's, it's an act of love. And if you look here in chapter 30, you can see these examples of what God is promising should they stray and return to him. And you can, if you, if you look carefully, you can see that God's not just interested in them following rules. God's interested in their heart. And so the purpose of Torah was not just to define a set of rules um, like they're playing a board game and if you step out of line, God's going to get you. The purpose of Torah was to change their hearts. And I think when you look closely, you can start to see that God is deeply concerned with the people's hearts and how they relate to one another and to him. That it's all about their hearts being changed. <clears throat> we can see in Deuteronomy that God is not setting up his children for failure. He's not created some intricate system and lofty standards for the people so that he can sit there and wait to press that smite button for anyone who steps out of line. Rather, God wants people's love, and he wants their obedience so that they might be his people. The obedience is so that they might be transformed into people who reflect God's heart and character. That's what I, I'm starting to realize. That's what Torah was all about. And so... We have here in Deuteronomy, Moses has been kind of revisiting the law, and it's really Moses' last will and testament. It's his final rally speech to the people to be faithful, to be faithful to God. So Chris, last week, he talked about these blessings and curses that as Moses is kind of ramping up to conclude his his uh, speech here, 
he talks about blessings and curses. So if you look in chapters 28 through 30, that's really what it's all about here. So I'm going to back up just a smidge to make sure that's fresh in our minds so we can see where Moses goes next. And we can see in, in chapter 28, right at the beginning, and then halfway through, he's outlining these two options that the Israelite people have in front of them as they're about to enter the land. Because remember, the first time they reached the land, they were disobedient. And they said, no way, we can't do it, it's not going to happen. And so now they're, they're headed back, right, after this period of wandering. And so Moses is outlining for them that if they fully obey the Lord, your God, carefully, follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord, your God, will set you high above all the nations on earth. And these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then he goes through and lists a bunch of blessings there that the people will have. And then on the other side, he says in verse 15, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not, and, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then he goes and he lists out these curses. Um, and then in chapter 29, what he does is he talks about this renewal of the covenant. He reiterates the covenant in light of these blessings and curses. And then we get to chapter 30, where he talks about, well, so what if you do fall away? What if you do turn from the Lord? What options do you have then? He doesn't, he doesn't leave them without hope, because... We know the rest of the story, right? We know what happens a little while later. We've got a period of some really great faithfulness from the Israelite people under Joshua's leadership, uh, far greater than their, their um, um, parents and grandparents, right, who were disobedient in the wilderness. Um, but it's not long after that that you get to the book of Judges, and things fall apart pretty quickly there. But I want, to, I want to compare some of these lists that we see in chapters 28 and chapter 30. What's the difference between these curses that God says, if you, if you don't obey me, this is what's coming your way, compared to the promise of being restored if they return to the Lord and if they uh, return to obedience to the Lord. But notice, notice what's happening here. It's almost like Israel's exile is foreshadowed. These are some of the curses here on the left that Moses mentions. Um, that they're, and they, Really, they all boil down to about these five or so things. That they'll be driven out to worship other gods. That, they will, that their crops will be destroyed and their cattle will be killed. That they're they'll witness their children experiencing death and that their numbers will diminish. That they'll be scattered from the land, not just removed from it, but scattered. And that the, the anger of the Lord will burn against not just them, but even the land because of their sin. And that they will be uprooted. Well, if you compare that to what Moses promises them in chapter 30, what we actually see is a great reversal of all of these curses that um, Moses says, this is what the Lord will bring upon you 
if you are unfaithful. And here again, we can see that God's not just concerned about their health and well-being and their prosperity. He's also concerned about their hearts. So he talks about circumcising their hearts. He talks about restoring their fortunes and their crops, increasing their numbers, that the, the, their wombs will become fruitful again, um, that they'll be given back the land, that they'll be gathered from the nation, and that they will experience Yahweh's compassion. So we can see here that every consequence, every um, every consequence of their disobedience would be forgotten and withdrawn, and that instead they would not only live in the land, but be prosperous again. Moses is telling the people here that even if they should fail, as long as they return to the Lord, he will receive them and bless them, and that God wants their hearts, not just their compliance, because... When he has their hearts, he will have their obedience as well. And that's a good thing because, as we've learned, learned uh, the Lord's Torah, his instruction, brings life and freedom, not death and captivity. Again, I think it's, it's easy for us um, in a different time and culture and on the other side of the cross to look back and say, that, that's burdensome, that's, that's captivity almost, to be under this, this yoke. But um, when we compare it to some of the other nations around them, we see that it was a blessing and that it brought life because they knew how to relate to their God. They didn't have to guess. They weren't in the dark. God showed them, and in fact, God told them, and he would have told them to their face as, as Chris demonstrated, but they were too afraid, so uh, God spoke through Moses. Um, it's, it's a much more intimate um, relationship than you see with some of these other nations around them and how they would interact with their supposed gods. So um, this, this hope that Moses gives them would be important because Israel had a long and difficult road uh, ahead of them due to their continued stubbornness. They had truly experienced every single one of these curses promised by God because of their disobedience. As the, as the story goes on, they're going to experience every single one of these things. <clears throat> and it's hard to fully understand how to have hope when things seem hopeless. And I think that's why it's so important that Moses is telling them this right now. Because I don't think they would have fully understood this, but they're instructed to pass this down to their children and their children's children. And one day, there's going to be a generation that really needs this hope, really needs this hope. But since we're talking about holding on to hope and curses, I thought I would try to do something that I don't think I've ever done before, and that's use a baseball analogy. Now, I want to preface this by saying um, I am way outside my lane here. I'm not really a baseball fan. And... From now on, I will leave the baseball metaphors to Chris, but uh, I think I'll do just this one, and, and it fits pretty well here, I think. So I want us to think about this idea of reversing the curse. You might um, resonate with that uh, phrase before, 
But uh, you don't even have to be a baseball fan to um, perhaps remember this um, big moment in, in sports history, really. So this idea of reversing the curse comes from uh, the Boston Red Sox. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I got some of this off Wikipedia, so if I'm wrong... Don't blame me, okay? Again, I'm not a baseball fan here. But I remember this. I remember watching this and following it. So uh, around 1919, the Red Sox, um, there was like a contractual argument, and they, they end up selling Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees, okay? Now, um, again, you don't need to be a huge baseball fan to know Babe Ruth was a big deal, right? So they, they sell Babe Ruth, and many dim years followed for that ball club. Prior to this, before selling him, they had won five of the 15 World Series that had happened. That's a pretty good record right there. Um, with the Yankees, however, Ruth went on to win four more World Series, um, while the Red Sox went on a very long drought. Uh, the Red Sox would only reach four more World Series through 1986, and they lost every single one in Game 7. Um, that is until 2004, when they went to the AL Championship Series against none other than the New York Yankees. And the winner of that, as I understood, will, would go on to the World Series and so they, if, they, if they got through this, they would get another opportunity, right? Um, they were down three games of seven, and uh, I believe losing the fourth. And they were able to turn things around, and they, they end up sweeping the rest of that series. Um, it, was, it was quite incredible because, um, at least as I understand, no other team had had done something like that, where they were really like on death's door here, but they end up winning and then winning all the rest so that they could move on. So then they go to the World Series, and they sweep the Cardinals. Four games, boom, done. They win. And the shortstop who made the final out War number three, which was Babe Ruth's number. And so this is where the whole reverse the curse idea came from because they were cursed. This ball club was cursed because they sold Babe Ruth. And so for like 86 years, they didn't, uh, they didn't win anything. In fact, that's, that number's not too far off from um, some of the captivity that Israel experienced as well. Um, not that it's exactly the same thing here, but, you know, there's, this was a big deal. I mean, I think many of us know that baseball fans can be a little superstitious, and so it wasn't lost on them that even the number three made that final out for them to win the World Series. And I imagine for many Red Sox fans, this was nothing short of divine grace and intervention. You know, for them, this was Almost a spiritual moment for those diehard fans. They were cursed for generations. Um, they probably knew what it was like to be a Detroit Lions fan, I imagine. And then finally coming up with a victory was nothing short of a miracle for them. Um, now, 
one of the differences here is that, you know, the this was all on the Red Sox. You know, they, they did this themselves. Now, I don't know if, if the Lord is a baseball fan or if he works. It says that he, he moves in mysterious ways, but I don't think he had too much to do with this necessarily. However, I think there's um, something to be seen here in this idea of reversing the curse and being stuck in this generational pattern of hopelessness that the Israelites would face. And so, you know, this is really Moses speaking to a, a later generation, but it's a message that they needed to hear. Chris reminded us last week of what it's like to get into this dangerous mentality of thinking that the good things that come your way come from your own hand. They come from your own work and abilities. And I believe that the Israelites slowly got into this habit where as they enter the land and they're victorious and they're prosperous and they start to settle in, slowly um, as time goes on, they began to believe that they were doing really good on their own. And they didn't really need God as much anymore. And I think slowly, time and to after time and time of, of thinking this way, and generation and generation thinking this way, they eventually get into this habit that's really hard to break, and it starts leading them away from the Lord. <clears throat> As I showed last week, uh, or the week before last, God gave them the Torah to, to change their hearts. That's what the law was about. It was to change their hearts and to avoid precisely this mentality. You might remember some of the laws that I highlighted, um, specifically to Israel's leaders. You know, those laws were designed to help them be reliant on the Lord, not on themselves or other nations to be reliant on God and to trust that God would provide. And so Moses' warning here, I think, is really a call to diligence, to stay sharp and don't turn away, don't try to go your own way. And when you fail, that we're called to return. Our hearts are prone to wander. It's just part of, I think, being human and being sinful and being selfishness, uh, that our hearts are prone to wander. And, and how easy is it for us to slip into this mentality that we can do it our own way, that our blessings come from our own hands? And I think it's also ironic that we might think that our blessings come from our hands, but when we experience hardship, who do we typically blame for that? Anyone but ourselves, right? So it uh, doesn't really work that way. I think what we see here is this picture of God's love and forgiveness and his patience and his steadfastness. That not only is God giving them the law and what he expects, but he's also telling them you're probably not 
going to be able to do all of this on your own because of your own sinfulness and your own selfishness. And when that happens, I'm right here. Where, how, wherever you wander, all you have to do is return. If you return to me, I will bless you. Now, there's going to be consequences for when you wander. Some of that's just natural, but some of it the Lord brings upon them to teach them and to show them that their disobedience is taking them down a path that doesn't lead to life but leads to death. And so uh, for me personally, as I was reading through this, a, a, a question that um, I kept thinking about is this, this question of how is God calling us to return? Or even more specifically, how is God calling me or you to return? Is there something in our lives, in your life, in my life, that we, our hearts are, are wandering? And we're, maybe we're slipping into this mentality of, I can do this on my own. I can do this on my own. Um, as someone who is really just action-oriented and, you know, focused on getting to the next thing and I it's real easy for me to get into this mentality of I can just do it myself and sometimes I have to catch myself and say you know have I we have this event coming up have I been praying about this you know am I am I just trying to complete this task or am I making space for the Lord to actually work and move here or am I just trying to get another thing done checked off my list? How am I creating space for the Lord to work and not Kyle to work? How am I being reliant on for God to come through instead of just me? Because on my own, I mean, I might be able to get some things done, but I can't do what the Lord can do, not even close. Is God calling you to return in some way, just like he's calling the Israelites long ago. Uh, it's an example of, of the Lord's forgiveness. That's always been God's mantra. Return to me. Come to me, all you who are weary. God wants us. He doesn't just want rule followers. He wants us. In many ways, I think Moses' conclusion here, as he's wrapping up his speech, it's very similar to the gospel that we see uh, in Jesus Christ. When we're obedient to God, we are recipients of God's blessing. When we're disobedient to God, we are recipients of God's wrath. Not because we're breaking some arbitrary rules, but because in our disobedience, we're acting as agents of destruction of God's good creation. At the end of the day, I think that's what sin is. It's, it's not breaking a rule. It's destroying God's creation. Whether it be in a word that I say to someone or something that I take from myself or anything else like that, it's destruction of God's creation. However, when we repent and when we return to the Lord and when we put our trust in him, and we do his will, we are met with God's forgiveness and spiritual prosperity. Now I want to look here 
We went, uh, we started off the series with this because sometimes it's nice to see where this is going before you. I don't know if you're the kind of person that likes to read the end of the book. Um, I don't think that's the best practice. But sometimes it's nice to know where is this going. And I think in a lot of ways this is the climax of, of Moses' uh, speech to the Israelites here is this idea of choosing life. Um, he says it here in verse 19. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. Again, you can hear Moses' concern, the Lord's concern is, is love for him. And so as we, as we kind of re- near the end here, there's a couple things that I think Moses is, is, is saying to the people. The first is that he's reminding the people that they can always return, that things may be good for them right now, but around the corner, they're going to go through some dark times, and they need to know, they need to be reminded that they can always return. He's also reminding them that the law is not too difficult. He says that in verse 11, that they can handle this. They really can. He reminds them that God's word is near, not far away. God is near to them. And then he gives them this prerogative that they have a choice to make. So choose life and not death. We're offered the same hope to choose life or death. We're offered the same promise that if we return to the Lord, we will be saved. Here we go. It reminds me of Paul's argument in Romans. Uh, I think we can uh, get a really great picture of, of the gospel in, in its fullness through, through Romans. But notice the argument that Paul's building here. In uh, chapter 5, he reminds us that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In chapter 6, he reminds us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in chapter 8, he reminds us for those who are in Christ, there is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of of sin and death. So we have this choice in front of us to choose life or death. And a lot of the times I think our, um, our mentality is it, it's good at the beginning, but just like the Israelites, it, it kind of slips into this, I can do this on my own. But God doesn't want us just to Come and, and follow all the rules. God wants our heart. And we can start to see that following these rules and, and being obedient, it, it is about our heart. Because it's an act of love to the Lord to be obedient. 
But we're given this promise too that we can return to the Lord and that God offers forgiveness, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this, this morning, as we continue in our worship, if, um, if you're at a place where um, perhaps you, you feel hopeless, that you're, you're in this cycle of hopelessness, and you're, you're not really sure where to begin uh, when it comes to returning to the Lord, we want to walk with you in that. We want to show you the way uh, to, to Christ, that he is the way, and that we want to walk with you. Um, so if, if there's anything you need this morning, if, if you need prayer or support or encouragement, we want to be there to offer that. Um, if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus or to give your life to him um, in baptism and continue to walk in newness of life, we want to be there for you in that as well. If you have any need, I'm going to be standing at the back. I'd love to talk with you, uh, but <clears throat> know that you don't have to do this alone and that God's design was for us to do this in community together but also with him, that God wants your heart. So let's continue together as we stand and sing.